And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. When I first started looking at the church calendar for the year 2018, a couple of things jumped out at me. Uh, the first thing I noticed is that uh, Easter this year lands on April Fool's Day. Uh, and so I'm sure that the media will have a lot of fun with that when it rolls around. Uh, but the second thing I noticed uh, is that Ash Wednesday landed on February 14th this year, of course the same day as Valentine's Day. And I thought to myself, oh, I wonder how that's going to work. How are we going to pull that off? Do we put the ashes on your forehead in the shape of a heart? I mean, is that how you combine these two days? Is that what does it? Uh, what happens when Valentine's Day, with its focus on love and romance, collides with Ash Wednesday, with its focus on death and repentance? Now, I do want to say, Valentine's Day is worthy of celebration. St. Valentine uh, was a third century bishop and martyr. Uh, he was beheaded on February 14th in the year 269 for refusing to participate in Roman idolatry. And while he was in prison awaiting his execution, he would write short little love notes, love letters to members of his congregation expressing his love to them and also exhorting them to continue to love one another even in his absence. Uh, Valentine had also been known to uh, conduct marriages between young Christian couples uh, during a time when the emperor had outlawed marriage uh, because he wanted to draft single men into his army. Married men were not as willing to go serve in uh, the Caesar's army. Uh, as I uh, thought about uh, how odd it is uh, to bring together these two events in the church's calendar, uh, Valentine's Day with its celebration of love and especially romantic love, and Ash Wednesday with its emphasis on suffering and self-denial and death, it actually hit me that there's something fitting uh, about these two days coinciding, about these two days in the church calendar falling on the same day this year, and not just because St. Valentine himself was a martyr who suffered and died for Christ. Uh, I think there's more to it. Uh, it's fitting that Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday land on the same day because there is no doubt that in our culture we have reduced love and marriage and sex to ashes. There's no doubt about that. We have ruined romance. We've ruined sexuality. We've twisted and distorted manhood and womanhood. And so it's fitting that these days go together. Valentine's Day needs Ash Wednesday because our view of love and sex needs the cross. Jesus died to forgive our sins, certainly including our sexual sins, including our, our sins against our own manhood or our own womanhood, our sins against love. But he also died to restore us to God's purposes, to restore us to God's design. He died to bring us to glory, to the glory that God planned for the human race from the beginning. In our culture, a culture that is marred and stained with rampant divorce, a culture that objectifies women, a culture that aborts a million babies plus per year, a culture that has legalized and promotes so-called so gay marriage, 
uh, a culture that celebrates transgenderism. In this culture, Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day belong together. Because we have reduced God's design for love and marriage and sexuality to ashes. We have violated God's design for our bodies, for the family, and for sex. We have turned God's glorious design for family life and for sex and marriage into ashes. And if we're going to celebrate Valentine's Day as we should, we can only do so by repenting in the way that Ash Wednesday teaches us to do. We can only really celebrate Valentine's Day and celebrate what Valentine's Day is all about by going to the cross for forgiveness and healing. The cross puts to death our flawed views, our twisted views of love and romance and sexuality, but it puts them to death so they can be resurrected and transformed. See, in love, as in all of life, there is a cross to bear. But in bearing that cross, we find glory. The cross leads to joy and to glory. Now, I know a great deal of what I will say here tonight uh, will seem like uh, simple reminders or perhaps a review. It's going to seem like common sense, I'm afraid. Uh, but common sense is not so common in our day. And these views that are so widespread in our culture have infiltrated and infected the church. And so we need to recognize the crisis, the cultural crisis all around us. We need to consider what's gone wrong and how we can make it right when it comes to these matters of love and marriage and sex. There is no question we're in a crisis. We certainly have a gender crisis. Uh, The so-called battle of the sexes, the tension and misunderstanding between men and women has never been greater. Uh, The battle of the sexes is alive and well. Uh, Indeed, many have pointed out we are witnessing a complete breakdown in the relationship between men and women. Now, of course, resentment between men and women uh, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to Adam and Eve, and how they turned against each other in the fall. But it's been intensified and expressed in new ways in our day. We have a crisis of gender. Men don't know how to be men. Men are afraid to be men. They don't even know what manhood is anymore. And women are afraid to be women. And no one knows who's supposed to do what. The traditional and biblical view that men are men and women are women Uh, that God has given to each of us an immutable gender or sex, and that the sexes are different, and that uh, the sexes are designed for a natural division of labor so that they complement one another. That view is now considered archaic. It's too old-fashioned. It's considered oppressive. Uh, The sexual revolution with its roots back in the 1960s has now come full circle. And we're starting to see its implications worked out, and it is not pretty. It's not pretty what it's done to men and women and their relationship. Jermaine Greer, who was one of the architects of feminism and of the sexual revolution, recently said this in light of the various sex abuse scandals that have been exposed. She said, we sexual reformers thought that when you took away the restrictions When you let people express their sexuality freely, it would be less sadistic, cruel, humiliating, and degrading. We were absolutely wrong. 
In other words, the great architects of the sexual revolution, which so impacted every aspect of our cultural life, were completely naive about what they were doing. They're confessing now the wrongness of it all. They had no idea the forces they were unleashing by loosening restrictions on how sexuality is treated and expressed. Feminism was all about empowerment for women, but it's highly debatable whether or not women today are actually more powerful than previous generations. Sure, they have certain rights that they didn't have, and that's a wonderful thing. Certain opportunities they didn't have. And again, that's a wonderful thing. We can all celebrate that. But in so many ways, women are now weaker than they were before. Gloria Steinem, another leader of the sexual revolution, uh, at a recent speech reflected uh, on the feminist movement of the 1960s. She said, we had great slogans like, be the man you want to marry. Okay, that slogan sounds kind of ridiculous now, but that was one of the slogans used back in the 1960s. And that's really the irony of feminism. Feminism, at least in its more recent forms, does not celebrate femininity. It actually masculinizes women and it feminizes men. And the problem with this then is that you have, when, when, when women have become like men, uh, when they become like the men that they wanted to marry, the cruel irony of it is men don't actually want to marry them. And so we really have uh, a, a, a crisis in this way as well. You know, we hear a lot today about toxic masculinity. And certainly there is such a thing as toxic masculinity, a, a masculinity that is twisted and warped in the way that is, it is expressed. But there is also such a thing as toxic femininity. And it's especially seen in women who have been masculinized, who have tried to take on the demeanor and the roles of traditional men and who have, in a sense, asserted their independence and said that they don't need men. And, of course, this has led to a marriage crisis. This gender crisis has led to a marriage crisis where fewer people are getting married than ever before. Fewer people are getting married and they're getting married later and later. See, the result of this gender crisis is a marriage crisis. The result of this gender confusion uh, has uh, produced what has become known as the marriage gap. It's the gap between women who want to get married and men who want to get married. Actually, the majority of young women today will still say that family is important to them, that they do ultimately want to get married, maybe after they've got a career established and that sort of thing. But they still want to get married someday. But the reality is the majority of men now no longer aspire to marriage. And a lot of the reasons for this are very obvious. One reason is because men want to love women, not compete with them. And the legacy of so much of uh, what has been called feminism has been to turn would-be lovers into competitors. And it simply doesn't work. It's not what men are looking for. Uh, you've also got the problem, of course, that many men do not seem marriageable to most women, but also vice versa. Many women do not seem very marriageable to most men. The fact is, many men don't like what feminism has done to women, and women certainly don't seem to like what feminism has done to men. But the marriage crisis is really tied to another uh, crisis, another aspect of the sexual revolution, and that is separating sex from marriage. Another reason that so few men become marriage material is because they can get sex without it. Sex without the responsibilities of marriage. 
and when this happens, men are not motivated or compelled to marry uh, as they would be otherwise. You combine that, separating sex from marriage so that men can, can, can find sex without having to get married. You combine that with the so-called war on boys in our school system. And you can see why so many men fail to really become marriage material. This war on boys is evident in all kinds of ways. And so many of our uh, schools and the, and the school system at large, the behavior of the girls is held as the standard for boys. And so when boys don't behave like girls, they're viewed as defective girls. And people wonder, what is wrong with these little boys? Why can't they act like little girls? Just a while back, I heard about uh, some elementary school age boys at a school in New Jersey uh, who were suspended from school. And the crime of these young boys was playing cops and robbers on the playground before school started. Can you imagine that? Being a normal boy is practically criminalized in the school system. Being a boy is politically incorrect. Masculinity in so many ways is pathologized and shamed in our culture. So it's no wonder boys are not growing up to be men because they've been shamed in their masculinity for so long. It's no wonder so few boys actually become responsible, mature men. Indeed, today with uh, we, we find that fewer men are entering college than women. More women are going to graduate school than men. Again, we can say it's wonderful that women have these opportunities. But when men are lagging behind like this, it's actually a recipe for civilizational disaster. Consider this. We're told that if more boys than girls play Little League, uh, that's considered a travesty and an injustice. It ought to be 50-50. It's a sign of patriarchal tyranny. Never mind the fact that boys and girls naturally have different interests, especially when it comes to sports. But if more girls than boys grow up to go to college, that's celebrated as a great triumph for women. And no one seems to care about the boys getting left behind. See, there is a crisis of masculinity. And this means really there is a crisis for all of us, for men, women, and children. You know, the most fundamental social problem that any culture faces is what to do with its unattached males. Unattached males, males who are not tied down in marriage and in home life, are the most destabilizing force in any culture. They're unfocused and undisciplined and unchanneled in their male Energy. Now, I'm not saying that all single men uh, are going to fail to thrive. Certainly many can flourish. Paul the uh, Apostle talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. He had a special gift of singleness, and some men will have that, and they can flourish and thrive as single men. But most men need to marry in order to thrive. Left to themselves, men do not do well. Men need older men to mentor them and guide them into manhood. And they need attachment to a woman to anchor them and to inspire them to greatness. In other words, what we're seeing in our culture is boys failing to develop into men. Manhood is not natural the way that womanhood is natural. Manhood is not natural for boys the way that womanhood is natural for girls. A woman's body, in very obvious ways, her biology reinforces what her womanhood is all about. She even has a monthly reminder of this. Her biology indicates 
to her as a woman what her primary role in society typically is going to be. Bearing children. But it's not so for men. Manhood must be taught. It must be learned. And that's why, you know, we don't really talk about women having a failure to launch. We talk about that with boys who fail to become men. We say, that's an example of a failure to launch. We don't really do that with girls so much. It doesn't happen for girls the way it does for boys. There is no female equivalent of the Peter Pan syndrome or the perpetual adolescence that is often ascribed to boys who fail to grow up. We don't really have phrases like woman up the way we do man up or be a woman the way we do be a man. And that's because womanhood comes naturally to girls in ways that manhood does not come naturally to men. Manhood has to be taught. It has to be, men have to be built. They have to be mentored. They have to be trained. Manhood has to be bestowed upon them by other men. And indeed also in certain ways, usually by a woman. A man becomes a man when other men say he is. A man becomes a man when he has finally captured the heart of a woman and married her. Why is it that when a man marries, his all his insurance premiums go down? They were, they were certainly higher before than a woman's, which uh, you wonder how, uh, doesn't that violate all the rules of equality that we hear about? Uh, but insurance companies don't seem to care about that. But when a man marries... His car insurance, his health insurance, and his life insurance premiums all go down. Why is that? I can tell you, it's certainly not because insurance companies are sentimental about weddings. It's that they know, it's statistically proven, married men tend to harness their energies in better ways. A married man is now channeled. He has direction. He has a new purpose in his life. He has an anchor. Indeed, the word husband, it comes from the old Norse. It means literally a man who is bound to a house. He's house bound, a husband. He's house bonded. He's bonded to a particular house. He's tied down. He's anchored. And this is why, in a very crucial sense, forming boys into men into good men, dependable men, men who protect and provide and procreate is essential to the survival of any civilization. A good man is a fountain, not a drain. He will produce more than he consumes. He will stabilize rather than destabilize the social order. A good man will recognize that he owes a special kind of care towards women, especially towards his wife. Let me give you an example of this from American history. It's not a really well-known example, but it should be. This is from the settlement uh, in Jamestown, Virginia in the early 1600s. This is how one historian uh, recounts it. As the settlement was set up in Jamestown, Virginia, uh, the British investors in Jamestown uh, had sent only men to establish the work there, thinking they would be less distracted this way. They sent only men initially to settle in Jamestown, but they were not seeing the expected return on their investment. And so they sent an agent uh, from England over to uh, Virginia to investigate, and he discovered that the men were not working, not working any more than they had to just to uh, barely survive. Uh, according to the report of one Sir Thomas Dale, 
the men were uh, making their daily work, quote, bowling in the streets. Uh, the way one historian describes it, uh, she says that they made the settlement like a long, rowdy fraternity party in Jamestown. So what did the investors do? How did they solve this problem of these men who were just partying and not really working there in Jamestown? Well, they began to entice marriageable young women to set out for the colony with offers of free passage and appealing hope chests. They supposed that wives might turn these will work tomorrow but party today, boys, into diligent, hardworking, productive men. And they did. One thing led to another, and presto, the most prosperous, hardworking nation in the history of the world. All because of the women that were sent to Jamestown. Maybe there's a little more to it than that, but that's right at the heart of it. See, there's a crisis in masculinity. There's a crisis in femininity, too. Isn't it interesting that at the very moment uh, when women are crashing through all of these glass ceilings, the importance of being a woman is being diminished? What does it mean to be a woman anyway? If Bruce Jenner can really become a woman simply by getting some chemical injections and a few surgeries, if that's all there is to womanhood, then what's the big deal? Why does having women involved and engaged in these different areas of culture like business and politics, why does it matter? If they don't really bring anything uniquely feminine to the table, why bother with it? Certain strands of feminism have told us for so long that men and women are essentially the same and that the differences that we observe in their interests and in their behavior are really due to socialization. We have these social constructs, and that's why you see these differences between men and women. But the reality is that's simply unscientific. There are far too many differences between men and women, uh, far too many differences for mere socialization to explain. And indeed, these differences are universal across history and across cultures. The basic differences between men and women must be natural and creational. They're built into us by God. They're not conventions. They're not social constructions. Each one of us is unchangeably male or female in every cell of our bodies and all the way down to the depths of our souls. You are a man or a woman all the way down. The fact is, feminism has lied to women. It's been said... Feminism has two major tenets. Number one, men are jerks. And number two, women should be just like them. Now, perhaps that's a little too clever, but that does seem to play out in all kinds of ways. Feminism has told women, you can be anything you want to be, so long as it isn't a wife and a mother. Or if you're going to be a wife and a mother, don't let that get in the way of your real calling and the real source of your fulfillment in life, which is your career. You must be career first. And indeed, if you're not, then you're betraying women everywhere by settling for being a wife and a mother. Oh, and you certainly don't need to submit to a man and follow the leadership of a husband. That's the message of feminism. Now, let me be clear about this. The Bible nowhere prohibits a woman from working a job, even a job that would take her outside of the home. If you look at the Proverbs 31 woman, this idealized picture of a wife, she's very busy in all kinds of ways, including in business endeavors. But Scripture is clear for a married woman. 
Her center of gravity must be her husband and her children. Titus 2 gives a really nice summary. It says the older women should teach the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be chaste, to be homemakers, and to be obedient to their husbands. That's the core essence of femininity according to the inspired Apostle Paul. And Paul would want us to see there is a glory in that. Feminism dims the glory, but there is a bright and shining glory in that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, the woman is the glory of the man. He lacks glory without her. She is glorious. Feminism has uh, applied all kinds of political and ideological and even economic pressure to women uh, to get them to ignore their natural calling, their natural desires to be husbands, their, their natural calling to their husbands and to their children. And we have to say that, that feminism has been quite successful in this. By applying political and ideological and, and, and economic pressure in our culture, feminists have been quite successful in this. But they have not been totally successful. God's creational design is pretty stubborn. Nature is pretty stubborn. And what we're finding is given the chance, even today, most women, if given the chance, if given the opportunity, will still prioritize family over work. And that, uh, I think, we have to see as a good thing. Our culture imposes on us the burden of having to fashion an identity for ourselves. But in truth, God gives us an identity. It's inscribed on our bodies and on our souls. To be a man is to have a particular calling. To be a woman is to have a particular calling. And these callings are each wondrous and glorious, but they are not the same. We live as men and women. There's a particular feminine piety and a particular masculine piety. Virtues that express themselves in feminine ways. Virtues that express themselves in masculine ways. Scripture's clear. We've got to live into our God-given callings. And God making you a man or making you a woman. God making you male or female. That's a dimension, a fundamental dimension of your calling. And as these different callings between men and women are harmonized, a new and glorious unity Emerges. And that's really what marriage and sex are all about. See, because we have a crisis in manhood, because we have a crisis in womanhood, because we have a crisis in gender and in marriage, we can say we also have a crisis in sexuality. And it has impacted us in all kinds of ways. It's, it's impacted us uh, in incalculable ways. We see it how it's impacted marriage, the very definition of marriage. But we need to understand that long before the Supreme Court's Obergefell ruling, no-fault divorce laws showed that we had abandoned God's definition and design for marriage in our culture. you got to go back a lot further than Obergefell to see where we got off the tracks with marriage. Again, the sexual revolution said that sex and marriage can be separated, that sex can be liberated from the confines and restraints of marriage. The sexual revolution said that sexual ethics can be reduced to consent. Who can object to whatever two consenting adults choose to do? But now I think we're seeing, especially in light of the uh, various sex abuse scandals that have been exposed, consent is not an adequate sex ethic. 
Indeed, sex is too wonderful, it's too valuable, it's too powerful, it's too dangerous to be left out in the open that way. Sex needs the security of the marriage covenant. Sex needs the covenantal framework of marriage as a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman to truly be safe and pleasurable in all the ways that God intended. Oh sure, the sexual revolution has catechized us teaching us that our bodies are playgrounds and we should live for pleasure. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6? He doesn't say the body is a playground. He says the body is a temple. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are sacred space. If the body's a playground, it doesn't really matter what you do with it. But if the body's a temple, then the misuse of sex is going to be disastrous. Because the body is a temple, this is why the misuse of sex hurts so much. It's blasphemy. It's sacrilege against this sacred space of the temple of your body. But see, this really gets us to God's ultimate purpose for sex. Yes, God made sex for pleasure. We as Christians should not be embarrassed by that. We don't cede that over to the world. Yes, sex is for pleasure. And yes, sex is for procreation. But sex is also for proclamation. Sex is symbolic. God designed sex to symbolize the deepest truths in the universe. God designed sex to symbolize His own love. God Himself is love. God is love. The Father, Son, and Spirit love one another. The Father and the Son have loved one another in the Spirit from all eternity. And further, Scripture shows us that history is God's love story. And sex is given to symbolize this, to symbolize this story. Sex, in a way, you could say, is the clue to it all, to the meaning of history. It begins with creation. And right away, we see God's intentions. In Genesis, in the Hebrew, the word for heaven is masculine, and the word for earth is feminine. And so while heaven and earth are distinct, it becomes clear that God's plan is to unite this masculine heaven with the feminine earth. He wants to unite heaven and earth in love. He wants heaven and earth to become one. God further reveals His purposes in making man male and female. First He makes the man, He makes Adam, then He says it's not good for the man to be alone. And so He makes the woman, He makes the woman out of the man's side. It's clear the man and the woman both share in God's image. They're made to image God's love. As they love one another, they're made to image the oneness of God as they come together in love. Their love is to be a powerful and fruitful love, bringing new image bearers into the world to populate God's world, to fill God's world with image bearers. And so we see out of the one man, God made two, man and woman, so he could make them one again in marriage. And out of their one flesh union, God brings another one. He makes them two again. The one fleshness of the husband and wife then giving birth to a a second, a child, who then will grow up and replicate this whole process all over again. But Scripture shows us again and again, all of this points us to something greater, something that transcends our earthly time-bound marriages. Our marriages are here today and gone tomorrow. Marriage doesn't endure death. When one of the spouses dies, the marriage dies with him or her. 
But there is an eternal marriage, a cosmic romance that will go on forever and ever, an eternally, happily ever after love story. A love story that ends with this eternally, happily ever after. And marriage, and sex at the center of marriage, is to witness to this greater love story. Our marriages are to witness to the marriage, the ultimate marriage of God to His creation, of Christ to His church, of heaven to earth. There are two views of sex available to us today. Two views. And every one of us has to decide between them. There is the culture's view and there is Scripture's view. There is the secular view, the culture's view, that says sex has no real purpose or meaning, and so you can treat it casually. Sex is just for fun. It's just for pleasure. It's a form of recreation. And oh yeah, procreation too if you want that, but you don't have to. It has no transcendent purpose. What we do with our bodies doesn't really matter. Our identity is completely fluid, and so we can even choose our gender. And there are no real rules for how we use sex, except for maybe that little rule of consent. That's it. That's one view. The other view sex says that sex is a wonderful and beautiful gift of God to be used according to God's glorious design. God unites a husband and a wife and makes the two one flesh to give us a glimpse of the glory and the beauty and the joy found in the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the great cosmic romance. It's the story of this cosmic romance in which God's son, the husband, lays down his life to win the hand of his bride in marriage. And together they live in love for all eternity. Those are your options. Those are your options. I think the right choice, the more compelling, the more attractive, the more beautiful choice is clear. Let's pray and ask that God would give us His grace. Lord Jesus, we give You thanks this day. We thank You that You are the husband of the bride, Your church. Oh Jesus, You are Lord of lords and King of kings. You are Lord of our sex lives. You are Lord of our sexual desires. You are Lord of our sexual identities. You are Lord over our marriages and over our singleness. Oh, Lord Christ, may we take up our crosses, especially in these areas of life, and follow you, slaying those sins that distort our sexuality. May you give us the grace to live in accord with your good design. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.